thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade all of my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. As stated in our last report on this topic, since April, I have been showing the historical evidence of how big business established religious right Christian mass media starting in 1940 to help big business and the wealth class defeat FDR's New Deal and its worker provisions and safety regulations, Social Security and veterans' pensions and the like, to garner a political majority to support an elite class by duping the Christian community with a new gospel that had the language of Christianity but put Christ's values and teachings on its ear and in effect promoted the wealth class values of the Pharisees whom Christ opposed, being the enemies of the Jewish common folk at the time, like the Christian Pharisaic antecedents since then. Our historical narrative and evidence covered the focus of big business, in particular big oil, and their originating role in establishing what was coined as Christian libertarianism, or wealth-class values with a Christian veneer. With the application of untold millions of dollars through new mass media channels and other connections, and its second generation that espoused overtly pro-Nazi and fascist ideologies amongst its most prominent Christian media figures in the 1950s and 60s. As the era closed with the death of Christianity Today founder and white supremacy movement investor, Sunoco Chief J. Howard Pugh, Jr. in 1971. In this segment, we will, really this time, conclude our discussions from the last number of months concerning its historical narrative of the industrialist founding of Christian media and parachurch organizations from a chapter of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, 
the teaching of Jesus versus the leaven of the Pharisees and talk radio and cable news. In this last report on the history of the founding of Christian libertarianism by American big business in the middle of the 20th century, we will have some concluding remarks on the spiritual nature of their fundamental premise used to sell the rest of their agenda to America's Christians regarding their basic contempt of civil government as the enemy of man, particularly its ability to police the weights and measures of the marketplace and the well-being of workers in the workplace and those too infirm to work. I will resume the citation from our previous report from Christianity's own religious text in the Gospels, specifically Christ's parable of the master giving the talents to his servants, noting how the miserly servant reveals a mindset much like their own, while also considering the broader implications of their scapegoating of elected government and their contempt of their less fortunate neighbors. I now proceed with a recitation from the last portions of this chapter from my book. While it is reasonable and in Indeed, essential to hold a government accountable for waste, fraud, corruption, and initiatives that do not advance the well-being of all in society, including kickbacks and tax breaks to big businesses and lobbies that bankroll the campaigns and the pockets of politicians and the out-of-control war machine that only benefits defense contractors. But it is not warranted to bury in the ground your funds, and valuable resource of personal involvement to otherwise be used in taxes, which Jesus has already validated as a necessary part of society, even in totalitarian ones like Imperial Rome, as an expression of total contempt for the institution, which otherwise could fulfill government's part of God's role in producing as just a society as is possible in this fallen world before his return. In exchange for the servant's hoarding of his resource and not investing it in his community, the master referred to him as a, quote, wicked, lazy servant, and acknowledged that it pertained to the servant's perception of him, saying that, quote, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed, being from Matthew twenty-five twenty-six. Well, the master then notes in the story that even if the servant had not invested the talent in speculative, long-range entrepreneurial investments like the other servants, he could have at least invested it in the bank with guaranteed interest. From verse 27. Obviously, Jesus was not referring to a regular bank in the sense of what he wanted his followers to use, but rather the institution that one knows will produce a return of good works. Of course, our local church can be a likely conduit for such, but God-ordained governments can also be such a venue if we stay engaged to influence its allocation and unique role as a coercive force to preserve justice, including economic justice. This coercive force, which the church itself is not supposed to exhibit, although it sinfully has in its shameful past, is a power, power lawfully given to governments by God as well as by those so governed, according to our founding fathers of our nation, if it is to be used as a coercive force to restrain other societal coercive forces that would otherwise harm us, either as a total collective or for minorities of some sort or those most vulnerable in our midst, like the stragglers in the herd. These dangerous coercive forces are not only outside armies that can overrun our villages, 
or armed bandits that can rob and terrorize us, but also controlling money changers and powerful banking and the, quote, great merchants of the earth, as the Bible calls them, who can buy armies or thugs to enforce their will on us, or merely control our lives by making us debt slaves, controlling wages and the prices of essential goods, or even the availability of essential commodities, even as the Bible shows clearly in the book of Revelation. God also expects us, as our brother's keepers, to look out for our neighbors, even when they might be too intellectually challenged or naive to understand when they are being exploited by the financial community, Madison Avenue, or other powerful forces. Indeed, God reproved God's man, the prophet Jonah, for being uncaring about the pagan Ninevites, whom God acknowledged were not just pagans, but also, quote, those who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. And, as a raging tree-hugger and animal rights fanatic himself, God also showed concern for the much cattle who were endangered there, unlike the representative of God. In the famous passage within Romans 13, Paul acknowledges that rulers or government can have a useful role, even in his era of autocrats that ruled through the most of recorded history. Quote, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. For he is a minister of God to thee for good. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. For this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, all of their dues, tribute or taxes, to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, Fear unto whom fear, honor unto whom, unto whom honor. It's from Romans 13. Of course, throughout history, we have seen despotic corruption and evil doing, and sometimes God's people have had to pay the price for defying rulers by refusing to renounce God or break his commands, or, however not enough, standing up for the weak outside their ranks that are subject to persecution. However, in general, God does not want us to pick fights with our authorities, particularly in terms of their attempts to restrain evil that could be applied to us by other armies or other violent forces, or even the economic variety, and to pay the taxes involved for them to accomplish these missions. To perpetually denounce governments as evil in concept, which is what we have documented from this Christian libertarian movement, because they use funds to help or protect other people, or to restrain those who coerce others by various means, is not supported in the Bible. In fact, Jesus repeatedly demonstrated a willingness to pay tribute or taxes as a way of life, even in an imperial government, in which he or his Christian followers could have no political influence, while keeping a primary focus on kingdom of heaven activities. For those of us who have been specifically blessed to live in a participatory democracy or republic, the responsibility further falls upon us to assist the government in this role and to help it determine what are the hidden coercive forces in the society and how to restrain them and look out for those who do not know their right hand from their left, and also to use all legal powers at our disposal to confront its misuse by government officials. We must also pledge not to grow weary and check out from the frustrating and exhausting process of holding powerful societal forces and government officials accountable, but also working to restore a healthy, and one might even say, 
a progressive improvement in the institutions and processes based upon lessons learned is a further responsibility for a Christian tasked with using every means to bless their neighbors and be salt and light. In closing, this chapter should remind us that a. Libertarian thinking, with its value of self-determination and free association, exhibits many merits for a Christian and everyone, particularly those of us originating from the radical reformers such as the Baptist and Anabaptist or Mennonites, with their commitment to the priesthood of the believer and the autonomy of the local church. B. However, it also has its prominent dark side for Christians and other moral persons, with its common fundamental emphasis upon selfishness and lack of duty to its neighbor, and which is actually a, a type of Luciferian and Antichrist trait that is at least acknowledged by some of its figureheads like Ayn Rand. C. Its emphasis on economic thinking, with free markets and lack of regulations, to the point of despising citizen government itself, even when the individual or minority is protected by a Bill of Rights, which is the real contribution of the United States to world civilization, while also ignoring the age-old coercive power of established capital and wealth over the marketplace and society that citizen-defending government was intended to counterbalance, which creates a plutocratic totalitarian state but is the primary influence on the broader conservative community. D. It is a minority view in its extreme forms, but is bankrolled by Fortune 500 corporations, tycoons, and banking interest in a semi-covert fashion. And E. It has had a significant role in conditioning and, in effect, brainwashing the major portion of the religious right leadership and community for generations, using pseudo-religious media outlets like faith and freedom, or Christian economics, and related organizations, ignoring the primary passages of Scripture relating to emphasis on care for the poor in the Old Testament and collective societal well-being in the kingdom of heaven, and rather created a selfishness and marketplace-based value system in Christian trappings as its wealthy benefactors recognize the merits of bamboozling the largest organized but most gullible segment of society in the evangelical and other conservative church communities to achieve their political and social agendas. Thus, the ability to manipulate the masses of American religious rights citizens did not originate with Sean Hannity, Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, or even Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson, but was built on a foundation of other big business bankrolled front media outlets from the anti-New Deal assistance for the poor and unemployed in the 1930s through the anti-communism-dominated 1950s. Of course, in propagating the leaven of the Pharisees, as I assert, of dismissing concerns about the little people, or what the Bible calls the Anawim, and rather holding the destitute to blame for their own plight, asking them who sinned, this man or his parents, as the Pharisees said in John 9 emphasizing the pursuit of wealth and a society structured to favor those most obsessed with it, and its possession being a sign of God's endorsement, and a general propagation of an elitist elect worldview of a chosen people, with a yet higher religious super-elite leadership 
Is it not surprising that the older beacon and defender outlets like Faith and Freedom, Christian Economics, and modern-day religious right-friendly talk radio cable news also exhibit the old Pharisaic racism and anti-immigrant views that complement this greedy, self- and mammon-centered Babylonian worldview? The real question now arises, how will a 21st century American follower of Christ tangibly respond to such revelations, and what are their duties and obligations? In the next chapter, we will see and give some examples of how some of the sages advising the Christian clergy and flock within these periodicals we've covered, and their fellow travelers, have little-known spiritual understandings and agendas that are not recognized by their rapt readers, but hopefully will be of great concern to them once exposed. Well, friends, that's the conclusion from the religio-political history chapter on the religious right from my recent book. As I stated in my last report concerning the closing arguments in this chapter, I'm sorry if this last segment was a little preachy and with a good dose of religiosity, but its chapter-ending punchline was intended to be a forceful yet well-intended punchline for our many religious right neighbors who might be hearing or seeing this in a constructive rebuke, with them being such a predominant segment of our community here and many others in America, using their own language, their values, religious figures, and even their holy text to confront them and hold them accountable, with a goal to maybe influence the thinking and contemplations of at least a few. For those of you not steeped in such thinking, I hope the data disclosed in the last few months of these reports may educate and then arm you to make constructive headway with your neighbors and family members immersed in religious right thinking for our mutual spiritual good. All of these reports are intended to be preserved and archived on a YouTube channel very soon to permit you to go back and listen to these individual reports or forward them to others, although not covered as comprehensively as by merely procuring the book and studying its contents upon which these reports were based. In our next report on these topics, we will continue with a review of an entirely different, shorter chapter of other but related subject matter from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form, either at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other sites, to review this and far more expansive material on its subject to sharpen our spiritual discernment in these very morally hazardous days we now find ourselves in. I will confess that this following chapter will be more salacious, enigmatic, and even downright weird, as it shows the offbeat, eccentric, and esoteric influences of religious right philosophical journals of the time that set the foundations of modern American studies into the paranormal, drug culture, and what is now known as New Age Spiritual Views. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefings. As I have been promising for a while, in a contemporary news storyline I have been detailing in case file reports since August, I will now lead our investigation into Tim Ballard, Operation Underground Railroad, and the trendy subject of anti-child sex trafficking, in its heyday this summer with the release of the film Sound of Freedom, as Ballard and his group obtained iconic status and cultural impact in the Christian community, 
with the success of their biographical film, and simultaneously being a reckoning based upon the findings of intrepid reporters the last few years we have revealed, and shocking new revelations over the matter of weeks, bringing this Camelot down like a major Greek or Shakespearean tragedy. Before that, however, it's time for some music for meditation. I have provided the information we have covered here from my book to local and national religious leaders, big and small, the last few years, down to local pastors, academic theologians, and such, and virtually to a man, they have ignored its findings and shown no interest in digesting, much less contemplating, the implications of its evidence and insights on the flawed foundations of our modern American evangelical culture. I understand that it's truce, and for one to respond honestly to the darkness it exposes would jeopardize their lifetime investments as hirelings as Christ would describe them, in a lucrative and comfortable evangelical religious culture and its institutions, even though its future, to me, resembles the Titanic, merely enjoying the hymns played up on the deck. Henson Cargill was a master of the country music message songs of the late 60s and 70s and was best known for his hit Skip a Rope. Enjoy his lesser-known song, Afraid to Rock the Boat. And we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. Big boys on the corner telling stories about the girls they've never known. Babies crying, angry voices advertise the misery in our home. Trusted people lying, leeching, very few deserve an honest vote. And the world plays dumb and goes along Cause everybody's afraid to rock the boat The book of life sits on the shelf Insulted by our non-constructive minds While the mysteries of the heavens go unknown We wander aimlessly in time with burdens on each man so heavy he can't swim There ain't no way to float And I guess that's the reason we do nothing And we're afraid to rock the boat It's doggy dog and justice is remote Sit down friend, you're about to rock the boat Someone who stood up and spoke his bit And the dominated free press Make it sound as if some fool had threw a fit One man came along We took offense because he promised us new hope We hung him on the cross And since then no one else has dared to rock the boat but it won't be long, the hour is near When love instead of hate will rule the world And the big boys on the corner Won't have nothing bad to say about the girls Every man will be as one Cause faith can make a mountain rise and float And only truth can set us free And soon the mighty hand will rock the boat it's doggy dog 
just as is remote And soon a mighty hand will rock the boat Soon the mighty hand will rock the boat Welcome back to the Two Spaz Report. I'm Mike Bennett. For the contemporary case files for this report, we will finally transition from investigative reports from the past several months regarding Tim Ballard and his Operation Underground Railroad purported anti-child trafficking operation, which has kept our hands full since this last August, and for which I recommend newer listeners or viewers review those episodes when I hopefully soon set up a podcast audio archive and YouTube channel before long and move on to the fateful events of this summer of 2023 now, which produced the zenith of heights for Ballard and his organization, and yet the scene of their rapid implosion. While the dark elements of their operation were made clear by intrepid reporters' advice, the Daily Beast, and smaller operations over the past three years, with some disturbing reports as far back as 2014 or 15, and thus reviewed here in concentrated form over the last few months. By and large, the evangelical or other religious right, particularly Mormon followers, he and they targeted in their confidence game through Glenn Beck and religious right media channels, conservative celebrities and MAGA and QAnon conferences, have been undaunted in their unwavering support to the point of cultish levels, being unswayed by disturbing investigative findings, mostly because they have never listened to journalism outside of their own religious right and conservative fishbowl. And if they still believe the election is stolen, they will not believe hard evidence from the lying media. Furthermore, judging by the pastors, religious leaders, and politicians they choose to represent them, they have not been known over the generations to be interested in much discernment or due diligence, particularly when these charlatans make them feel prideful and good inside. The key element of the yet bigger upswing in awareness and new followers of Ballard and his rescue operation, beyond feeding the child trafficking mania inspired to new heights by the QAnon movement embraced by Minnie and MAGA, is the final, long-awaited release of a movie that became a fanciful, fictionalized, but high-on-drama biography of Tim Ballard in the early days of Operation Underground Railroad, and what was viewed as a quaint Christian film that normally would have minimal box office impact, but rather became an underground blockbuster and a cause of religious devotion by his Christian proponents to the point of buying blocks of tickets in bulk for theaters to drive up its box office success, and even conspiracy theories of mainstream cinema managers sabotaging screenings, evidently in support of the deep state. This triumph for these collaborators was made possible by equity crowdfunding conducted by Angel Studios, with 100,000 investors uh, queried and 7,000 agreeing providing $5 million for distribution, and being executive produced by motivational speaker Tony Robbins, himself having had issues with sexual harassment allegations, co-written and directed by Alejandro Monteverde, and produced by Eduardo Verestigui. Angel Studios and the end of the film itself also encourage patrons to pay it forward by buying tickets in theaters en masse. It was released to theaters on July 4th, 2023, and by October 19th, 
It had grossed $184.1 million in the U.S. and Canada and $238.5 million worldwide, with $10 million in ticket pre-sales. The newfound national and international fame from Sound of Freedom was built on previous years of courting religious and conservative mass media and celebrities, which was making the organization and Ballard very wealthy. According to Ministry Watch, a conservative Christian organization that monitors nonprofits, they gave uh, Operation Underground Railroad a Give With Caution score with a transparency grade D, with assets ballooning to $82.1 million by 2021, and with 2020 and 2021 contributions of $45.9 and $39.7 million, respectively, on top of other revenue. Those were just uh, like charitable contributions, with expenses of 13.6 and 31.5 million in each of those years. They also report that Tim Ballard was making over $546,000 in annual salary by the end of 2022. Ballard and Operation Underground Railroad, or OUR, also received some additional positive information as the summer began. On May 12, 2023, the Deseret News, a popular western newspaper owned by the Mormon Church, reported that the Davis County Attorney's Office in Utah, uh, their investigation of Ballard and Hour, made known in 2020 and in many ways the start of journalistic inquiries into their operations, was reportedly shutting down. They write, quote, The Davis County Attorney's Office has closed its investigation of Operation Underground Railroad and will not pursue any potential charges related to the organization, according to the declination statement obtained by Deseret News. The end of the investigation, dated March 28, 2023, in the document, marks roughly two and a half years since Davis County Attorney Troy Rawlings first publicly confirmed he was looking into the Utah-based nonprofit, which says it works with local law enforcement to combat child sex trafficking. Tim Ballard, the founder and CEO of Operation Underground Railroad, says the investigation harmed the organization's reputation. The reviewed charges by Rawlings' office concluded uh, included communications fraud, witness tampering, and retaliation against a witness, victim, or informant according to a declination statement which Rawlings confirmed was authentic, unquote. They, they continued, quote, The determination to close the investigation came after Rawlings' office received and reviewed financial audits of Operation Underground Railroad and information supplied by law enforcement agencies, including the Utah Attorney General's office. That's Rayos. The document says, Rawlings' office also took into account details provided by Operation Underground Railroad about the organization's domestic and international initiatives and the current prosecutorial priorities of the Davis County Attorney's Office in making the decision, according to the document. Rawlings' investigation of Operation Underground Railroad was first made public in a Fox 13 news story published in October 2020. A few months after the Fox 13 story was published, Operation Underground Railroad began to face national media scrutiny, with the digital news outlet Vice World News reporting that several people familiar with the investigation had said potential charges could revolve around whether Operation Underground Railroad and its founder had misled donors 
and the public about the nature of its work and rescue operations. Well, such news might have been very effective in brushing away obscure criticism from the likes of Vice and such, which certainly had not penetrated the discussion circles of their vast religious right devotees either. However, even in this last bit of good news, was not left uncritiqued and debunked by a heroic and legendary religious muckraker journalist and whistleblower who had been hounding them, just like the most famous Mormon celebrities and top influencers he had debunked and exposed via impeccable journalism beforehand, at least since right after their founding in 2014 of our and the source of the most compelling findings on our used by major news sources since then. Enter Lynn Packer. According to the American Crime Journal, which provided an additional forum for Packer and Damian Moore to give investigative scoops on Operation Underground Railroad and other topics, the following is a concise biography of Mr. Packer, which I edited. Quote, Lynn Packer is an award-winning investigative reporter, television news consultant, and trial consultant. He graduated from Utah State University in Logan, Utah, with a broadcast journalism major with German language minor. He was a radio disc jockey for KBUH in Brigham City and KVNU in Logan while attending college. Packer served in the United States Army between 1968 and 1970. In Vietnam, he was a television news anchor and producer for the Armed Forces Vietnam Network, uh, Quang Tri Detachment. He was awarded the Bronze Star. For 15 years, Packer reported for KSL Television News in Salt Lake City, where he covered city, county, and state government, uh, and did investigative reporting for the documentary unit and hosted a weekly talk show. Among the major stories he covered were the Challenger space shuttle disaster, the Mark Hoffman bombing murders, the trial of serial killer Ted Bundy, and the Judge Willis Ritter corruption scandal, which he also consulted on for CBS's 60 Minutes. His teaching career spanned 10 years as an adjunct journalism instructor at Brigham Young University of Provo and the University of Dortmund in Germany. After teaching in Dortmund, Packer consulted for various German television stations, including WDR in Köln and Dusseldorf, Sat1 in Hamburg, etc. He wrote a textbook for German television news reporters. Packer won first place investigative reporting awards for the Society of Professional Journalists, SPJ, Utah chapter, in 1984, 1995, 96, and 2001. He freelanced dozens of articles amongst them, the Gold Core Fraud Story, Mormon Fraud History, Bonneville Pacific Fraud, the Paul Dunn AFCO Fraud Story, and the Utah 2002 Olympic Bribery Scandal. They note that he's an author of the book, Lying for the Lord, the Paul H. Dunn Stories. Now, while Packer great, great, gained great fame for his investigations of high-profile secular subjects, he has paid the price in his career for exposing outright fraud within his own faith, tradition, and community, chief amongst those being the famous Mormon figure Paul Dunn, and thus has gained a fearsome reputation by the powerful in Mormon leadership due to his impeccable facts-based research and as a legal advisor in trials. The Mormon-owned Deseret News had this to say about Packer in their February 16, 1991 article, quote, 
Elder Paul H. Dunn, one of the most popular speakers and authors of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, made up many of the stories about baseball and battle as he told his personal experiences, a newspaper reported Saturday. For example, Dunn's best friend did not die in his arms in World War II, nor did the longtime member of the church's hierarchy ever play Major League Baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, the Arizona Republic said. Dunn, 66, acknowledged those stories and others were untrue, but defended fabrications as necessary. As an LDS general authority since 1964, Dunn was among the 90 men who governed the 7.5 million member church. But in October 1989, he was placed on emeritus status for health reasons. The action came weeks after the church leadership investigated listen, allegations by freelance writer Lynn Packer that Dunn's war and sports stories were fabricated. Now, Listen to this. The newspaper alleges the church pressured Packer, who is a member of the church, not to publish his findings, which were provided to the Republic last fall after Packer's teaching contract at Brigham Young University was terminated for pursuing the story. The university terminated Packer's teaching contract, in part because he wanted to publish a story about his findings. Gordon Whiting, then chairman of the BYU Communications Department, had warned Packer in a memo that publication of the Paul Dunn article will damage the church, will damage the university, will damage the department, and will damage you, unquote. Whiting acknowledged the decision not to renew Packer's contract for the 1990-91 school year came in part because Packer was violating church and university policies that pro prohibit public criticism of church leaders, even if the criticism is true, unquote. Now, numerous sources cite Lynn Packer as the nephew of Boyd Packer, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, LDS Church, from 2008 until his death in 2015, and an apostle and quorum member since 1970. And Lynn was indeed a practicing Mormon, and presumably still is. However, he was a truth-seeker who, who had to have the teachings of his faith make sense to him. So it is no surprise he quickly ran into trouble. The literary journal Dialogue features a review of Packard's 1969 book, A Missionary Experience, about his experience as a Mormon missionary in Germany. Here, Here's what they write in their perspective on his book. Quote, Probably the key issue in my entire mission was whether I should do everything my leaders told me to do. This issue, I believe, will be one of the major importance in the years to come. Unquote. With these words, Lynn Kenneth Packer sums up his experience as an LDS missionary, experiences which began with his arrival in Germany in 1963, eager to be a leading baptizer and led through growing dissatisfaction with the standardized lesson plan and disenchantment with mission politics and an authoritarian system unresponsive to criticism and innovation, finally resulting in a reputation as a problem missionary, in threats of a dishonorable release, in reassignment to another mission, and eventually a virtual banishment to a remote Indian reservation. 
They continue, Mr. Packer contends that the inflexible mission programs are often ineffective and sometimes dishonorable, and he offers some disturbing evidence to support this contention. In a series of appendices at the end of the book, Mr. Packer outlines his proposals to correct these problems. He insists that individual missionaries ought to place more reliance on inspiration and less on prescribed teaching plans. He objects on doctrinal grounds to the heavy emphasis on baptism and the comparative neglect of the other first principles, faith and repentance. He complains that far too many people are baptized before they're converted or understand the gospel with any real thoroughness. They note that the mission handbook states that, quote, sometimes missionaries feel they are restricted by being required to learn the discussions word for word. This is what their handbook says. Salesmen who are sent out to sell their products must commit to memory certain lines by which they can be effective in conveying their product in just the right manner. Actors on a stage must learn their lines. Now, that sounds just like how Billy Graham described selling the gospel like selling soap, he said before. Well, they said that the analogies reveal the assumptions. The gospel is a commodity that can be sold by the same techniques that sell used cars or vacuum cleaners. The missionary is a pitch man, an actor going through his performance to clinch the sale. These are assumptions Mr. Packer found unacceptable, and rightly so. Elder Packer would be satisfied with nothing less than an opportunity to present his ideas to the church missionary committee. When he was flown to Salt Lake City to meet with the committee, he was shocked and disappointed to discover that they were not interested in listening to him, but instead scolded him severely for insubordination. This experience seems to have confirmed Mr. Packer and the conviction that the church provides no effective avenue for criticism or productive change by followers. Well, I have to say that even though his faith differs from mine, you can see how I would view him is a Two Spies Report patron saint. Now, one additional notable attribute of Packer is that even though he has uncovered damning information about the favorite sons of the Mormon church, like the untouchable Paul Dunn, and high-level Mormon corruption on the business scams and Salt Lake City Olympics fiasco, and even lost his livelihood after having been warned by church officials to keep silent on the truth, he still maintains his faith. In fact, when a follower asked him to confirm rumors that I saw online that he had been excommunicated for telling the truth and thus left the faith, he replied by email reportedly, quote, Well, that would have surprised me as well. I was never excommunicated or disfellowshipped. No complaint was ever made to my bishop or stake president. That was a rumor started by Paul Dunn and his family. I explain how the story came about in my book. I did much of the research while teaching at BYU. Both administrators up my faculty chain of command knew about the research and encouraged it. Journalism, after all, is about fact-finding and truth-seeking. It was only when Dunn went to his close friend, Jay Balif, who was a vice president, that BYU decided not to renew my contract. Once it became a controversy at BYU's administrative level, they insisted I brief the brethren before I published which I did, meeting directly with two apostles assigned to the Dunn matter, Elders James Faust and David Haight. They assigned an attorney to check my facts, asked me to provide him material, which I did. 
His investigations confirm that Dunn lied about his World War II record and non-existent Major League Baseball career. The meetings I had with Elders Faust and Haight before and after Dunn's emeritus status were civil and ranker-free. They never defended Dunn or his lying in speeches and books. They never accused me of betraying the church, and they never threatened my membership. Well, not surprisingly, the gumshoe detective Packer was on to something fishy with Tim Ballard in Operation Underground Road shortly after it had been founded and with limited fanfare, even though it was at the time he was finishing and releasing his long-awaited book on Mormon icon Paul Dunn. The earliest report I could find from Packer as such was a rudimentary report at archive.org from March 31, 2015, entitled, quote, Rambo Reyes and the Child Sex Slave Rescue Industry, Vigilantes Cut Through the Red Tape, unquote. There he discussed the fateful Operation Underground Railroad, or our raid, uh, that included controversial and election-denying Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes along in Columbia. He said of Rahas, quote, swashbuckling adventure that, quote, afterwards Rahas suggested Utahns donate to the group, make appearances at its fundraisers, and promotes the entity to Utah police chiefs. Packer notes that in a Mormon magazine, Ballard said he started our after he and his wife visited a Mormon temple and got a spiritual download to find the lost children and to move to Utah and made arrangements to operate privately, starting to get donations by January of 2014. Well, Packer adds then in 2015 that, quote, Our, or O-U-R, was modeled after several dozen similar charitable groups in the United States that raised millions of dollars whipping up public awareness, some say hysteria, by using catchphrases and marketing taglines such as child sex slave, child sex trafficking, abolition, and break the chains. Most of them describe the problem as an epidemic that ensnares 2 million children in sex slavery worldwide by traffickers who make billions of dollars. Anti-child sex trafficking charity groups often recycle the same unverified numbers, yet still compete amongst themselves for donors. Packer notes Hour was founded in September 2013, having made more than a dozen incursions out of country by the spring of 2015, with Attorney General Rahas going in the October 2014 Colombian operation. Rahas telling the Salt Lake Tribune in an interview that, quote, I was the muscle making sure that we portrayed an image of power and prestige, quote, but that this was not a political stunt. Now, Packer notes that at the time, Attorney General Rahas was pitching our to donors. It was not even an approved charity, according to Utah state law. He notes that Glenn Beck raised over a million dollars for our in 2014, telling listeners that, quote, they need your tax-free dollars, and that, quote, I have nothing to do with it. This is in 2014. Our's fundraisers were claiming that it had 5013C status when it did not or the operating disclosures that it requires. Until March 2015, when it did obtain it, it piggybacked on the nonprofits, the Child Rescue Association of North America, CRA, and listen, the Elizabeth Smart Foundation, ESF, with them not even knowing where the hour money was going. 
You might remember Elizabeth Smart as the young girl who was kidnapped at home from her father Ed and her, and her mother and hidden and subject to sexual abuse by a deranged couple, leading Father Ed and Elizabeth to later found the charity, uh, the entities of which Ballard called his program partners. After Hour obtains tax-exempt status on its own in March 3, 2015, on March 14th, Hour and Elizabeth Smart Foundation announced that they had merged, with Ed Smart becoming a vice president and full-time employee and the Smart Foundation directors resigning as the Hour directors took over. Now, apparently, the Child Rescue Association was pushed out at that time and not needed. Packer notes that Hour's IRS application shows the directors or leaders are almost all extended family of Ballard. The IRS also notified Hour that they had lied on their 2013 return in claiming 5013C status. Ballard resigned as a federal agent on December 10, 2013, and they applied for nonprofit status after the IRS notice and warning, and mysteriously were given expedited approval without penalty. Packer notes the concept of Hour originated in 2013 when some Mormon reality TV producers wanted to make a TV show showing rescues. And upon seeking funds from Glenn Beck, again in 2013, he approved it. And they produced a pilot similar to the theme of Rambo 4, essence and theme. Beck did not reveal Ballard's name in the planning since he was still a federal agent at the time, but raised $200,000 from his audience from their first appeal, but their appeals were mocked online by the Special Forces community, and the video game profiles that had been put up of the operators that they showed, and it's blaring inconsistencies with it. Packer notes that Ballard had been on Beck's show before all this to promote his book, The Lincoln Hypothesis, which gets this, which, quote, attempts to make the case that Abraham Lincoln was inspired by God and had read the Book of Mormon and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, i.e. Mormonism. Ballard said it is significant that right after Lincoln purportedly read the Book of Mormon, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation to free the slaves. Packer then proceeds to document one by one how Ballard deceives sponsors over how they conduct their missions and the spurious trafficking data they spout to would-be donors. Now, this is back in 2015 he's doing this. Packer concludes with recounting a long list of previous child trafficking panic scams that were later found to be hoaxes, such as around impending Super Bowls, but had duped both the public and law enforcement. On March 16, 2015, Operation Underground Railroad released a press release, this is in 2015, entitled, Operation Underground Railroad and Elizabeth Smart Foundation Officially Merge. I have a copy of this press release. They write that, quote, this is from the uh, release, OUR Hour was founded in 2013 and Ed Smart, Elizabeth's father, came on as the Director for Prevention and Rehabilitation in August of 2014. And they, quote, the idea to completely merge the similar-minded nonprofit organizations came from Ed Smart. Quote, we are actually one organization. We're keeping our separate names, but we're on board, Elizabeth said. We love that they were an action-oriented group. I wanted to lend my name to a cause that liberates children. 
in September of 2014, as we discussed the future hour, Elizabeth and I both felt that there was a terrific synergy between our missions, and it would be powerful to see these two organizations merge to maximize the potential of preventing sexual abuse. At least by February 22, 2021, the American Crime Journal and Damian Moore reported online that, quote, in August 2014, Tim Ballard and Utah General Sean Rahouse announced that Operation Underground Railroad and the Elizabeth Smart Foundation were merging. The merger was highly publicized in the Utah press, lending our legitimacy. Ballard and Rahouse wasted no time peddling the merger for donations. As part of the then-upcoming merger, Elizabeth Smart was put on the Board of Governors. Her father, Ed, was named Director of Prevention and Rehabilitation, or Aftercare. Shortly thereafter, Ed Smart left our, quote, in disgust. He was dissatisfied with how Auer actually handled the aftercare of purported rescued sex slaves. Elizabeth and Ed Smart severed all ties with Auer, terminating the merger. Ballard and Rahouse then perpetuated afterwards that Auer and the Elizabeth Smart Foundation had merged. In May 2015, uh, press release, Auer announced that the merger was now official. And that is the final update that Auer's website had on this to this very day. On June 21st, 2021, the American Crime Journal uploaded and published a YouTube video entitled, quote, Ed Smart Speaks Out About Operation Underground Railroad, which features Lynn Packer citing an interview he recorded with Ed Smart. Packer claims that the merger with Auer and Elizabeth Smart Foundation never happened, and Elizabeth left the uh, board and Father Ed quit his job there. He says that Smart told him that he was totally disillusioned with Auer and Tim Ballard, and that when I heard Tim make comments that I felt were not true, I became even more delusioned. And it hurts me to see people pour money into Auer when I feel it's very undeserving. This is Ed Smart talking. And one thing that I would like to say about Tim and his organization, they were a money-making machine. Ed also said that he was at the bungled Gardy Marty rescue mission, which we've mentioned before, which the Mormon site LDS Living says occurred in February 2014, the one in which Tim used a lead from a Mormon psychic, Janet Russon, who supposedly channeled the Mormon angel Nephi to develop the lead. Smart reportedly stated that five hour members went to a city in the Dominican Republic where LDS Apostle M. Russell Ballard rededicated the country for Mormon missionary work. After the mission failed, Smart says that Ballard told he and the other team members to, quote, don't say anything about it, and that participants were asked to sign non disclosure agreements. While dissenters were threatened, as Ballard did not want it out that they were using a psychic. Well, I'm going to have to put a stop here because we were going to get back to what happened to the end of this investigation, but we're going to have to wait for next time for that. Because the very the next day that this news came out on May 13th, other things happened at our, which brings a dam bursting of revelations and their ramifications, which we'll find out about next time. You know, while I'm heartbroken that my fellow Christians would fall for such a guy, at least to me, it seems obviously a huckster and prolific liar just from my looking at him when he talks and analyzes his words and responses and comparing him to other salesmen and historic con men I've seen. 
And yet, how again the Christian community will have egg on its face when the smoke clears. I am happy that this exhausting period of fact-checking for me has introduced me to heroic figures like Lynn Packer. While some of his claims, some listeners not familiar with him may want to verify independently or withhold judgments till more data comes to light, which is fine and often prudent, Mr. Packer has earned a lifelong reputation as a truth-seeker, an esteemed journalistic professional who seeks source material, seeks interviews with cited individuals, and chooses his words carefully, thus earning his premier positions in Utah and international news media, and as an esteemed academic instructor of journalistic technique and standards. What impresses me more about Packer is that he's indeed a man of faith, but ultimately a truth seeker, and not unwilling or afraid to confront the most venerated and powerful figures in his own faith community to hold them accountable, believing it is essential to not tear down the faith, but to retain any authenticity to the point of jeopardizing his own career to value and pursue stuff. Um, I have more to say about him, but I would just say if I could only find such people within the ranks of my Bible Belt evangelicalism. Friend, that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. Send any comments about the show or questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com, T-W-O-S-P-I-E-S report gmail.com. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and be willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand Telling all my friends about the crime